0: Welcome to the third of three parts of this roundtable discussion with the faculty of the Educational Initiative, Optimizing Postoperative Pain Management, Role of Local Anesthetics. These podcasts were produced by ASHP Advantage and supported by an educational grant from Pissera Pharmaceuticals, Inc. In part three, Dr. Julie Golombiewski explores issues related to multimodal therapy and the evolution of analgesic delivery systems with Drs. Virginia Gaffour and Leslie Schechter.
1: Turning specifically to local anesthetics, I think that pharmacists need to be aware of potential adverse reactions as well as other safety concerns with local anesthetics. It starts with recognizing that there can be inadvertent systemic absorption leading to central nervous system and cardiac toxicity. There are also some other safety considerations with local anesthetics that we need to think about. And I'm wondering if Ginny and Leslie could share some of their thoughts on that.
2: Great, Julie. This is a topic that we've had to do a lot of education with our pharmacists, especially as we started bringing in more lastimeric pump use and Expiril, because quite honestly, the pharmacists didn't even know that you can give too much local anesthetic, especially if you um, have a patient that has orders for lidoderm patch, they just had Expiril, And all of a sudden, they have to be brought back to the OR room two days later again for another procedure. Then the question goes, oh, how long do we need to wait before we give another local anesthetic? And, oh, what kind of local anesthetic should we give? And so the first thing that we had to do in answering that is build the recognition in order sets as well that there is a maximum dose to local anesthetic and putting cues on the MAR that you can't give any other local anesthetic within 96 hours of and that's an example of liposomal bupivacaine. But we also needed to have the pharmacist understand what a local anesthetic toxicity may manifest as because that was a question that when you build an order set and you say, watch for signs and symptoms of local anesthetic toxicity, the first question is, well, are they going to have heart block right away? And it's usually the numbness tingling of the lips or they're starting to feeling faint, the blood pressure may drop a little bit and If that's not recognized, then, you know, they may not see that as a problem giving more local anesthetics. So these are some of the basic education components of it. And then we also had to, again, talk about other ways that pharmacists should be monitoring local anesthetics through maybe triggers that occur in EPIC. I'm saying that. You know, this patient already has had something on the MAR. Do you really want to approve another order for it? So those were some of the ways that we modified it on the front line so that um, our pharmacists that maybe don't have as much experience could learn through some of the systems we built in
3: the other thing we have to be very careful about with local anesthetics is the fact that it can be administered by a surgeon or an anesthesiologist. They need to communicate with each other. But in addition to that, for instance, at our institution, when the elastomeric pump devices first came in, we had no idea that they were even there and that they were being filled in the ORs and that, you know, we were getting orders for 200 mLs of bupivacaine. Why? And so we discovered we had these. And then a decision had to be made. Who was going to prepare these? Because they were made in the OR. And with USB 797, it was decided they would be made in the pharmacy. And then it was decided they'd be outsourced and then you had the issue with outsource pharmacies so there's a lot of issues that need to be addressed by the pharmacy in addition to that how does a nurse know that the person had this placed in the or if the surgeons putting it on is there an order for them to enter it? Because they tend not to enter OR orders onto the patient more or the patient medication administration record. So you have to have a method to put this order that the person received it so that other people will be aware they've got it. The same thing can be said for liposomal bupivacaine, that if the person got it, the surgeon administered it, how did the people in the PACU or the floor know the person received it? You must come up with ways, and I think the pharmacy has to be involved with that, to identify these patients that receive these local anesthetics in different ways. And there's many other types of methods to give local anesthetics. Somehow this all has to come together so we can avoid the toxicity issue. The other thing I would like to point out here, and this just happened at our institution recently, is that we had IV fat emulsion available in case there was an issue with toxicity, and it was expired in several of our pexis machines, so the technicians pulled it out and didn't replace it because it was never used and it was expired, which is a good thing. We didn't have any toxicity issues, but then what happened if we had and there was none there? That would have been an issue. So again, keep in mind that it should be made available anywhere that a local anesthetic is being administered in case there is an issue and we do need to treat it.
1: That's a really good point, Leslie, and I'd also add that pharmacists can definitely be involved with educating the nurses uh, postoperatively because, you know, they may not even recognize that the patient received these drugs and what they need to monitor for and what that means. And also to help remind the physicians that the patients did receive a local anesthetic if, for example, the patient seizes, that they may now raise that on their, um, in terms of to the more near the top of their differential. Costs can also be a barrier unless it's offset by advantages. Pharmacists can take the lead in evaluating options for managing postoperative pain by conducting medication use evaluations and then using those results in the decision-making process related to local anesthetics for postoperative pain. Do you have any comments about the use of MUEs and how that might be important regarding local anesthetics?
2: Depending on what volume you're using, it can create quite a cost that you're going to be assessing. For example, if you have to use 600 mils of a local anesthetic like ropivacaine to fill an elastomeric pump, you're looking at about $300 just in the drug cost. you know, on average, mm-hmm. if you're looking at the price indices for ropivacaine. It's similar with other local anesthetics versus comparing it to a vial of liposomal bupivacaine, which is roughly around the same price. So if you're looking at cost to cost, sometimes, you know, the drug costs can be equated, but it's actually the delivery system is where you'll bear the biggest difference in the cost. And so, you know, where one may be just a single injection or an infiltration process um, versus the other, which is a pump that maybe is running for three days and the cost of the pump is much higher. When we have looked at MUEs, we also look at what devices or the drug is being used for and what procedures they're being used. Use for because sometimes the cost is actually minimized when you're seeing that it has different indications for different uses and efficacy. And the example that we have is we have both Exparel, which is the liposomal bupivacaine, and you know of course ropivacaine and um, bupivacaine on our formulary for different uses for local anesthetic infiltration or nerve blocks. But what we've noticed is that. As we've started to look at the various procedures, it has become clear with some of the um, laparoscopic cholecystectomy patients and our partial colectomy patients where we've had fairly good data using more of an infiltration or a TAPS block with liposomal bupivacaine rather than putting on an elastomeric pump. We used to use a lot of elastomeric pumps in those populations and send them home with an elastomeric pump, but we found that they get fairly good pain control with a single shot with Expirel versus that pump and it's actually even less cumbersome for the patient. So where we're seeing the good pain outcomes and we're seeing the advantages of discharging a patient the same day, there's definitely advantages of using one over the other. If You can take that data into consideration and you um, factor in all the cost and the patient satisfaction with it. Then you really um, have a good way when you're doing that MUE of balancing out the indication versus cost. There's other areas that are a little bit more difficult when you're looking at epidural sometimes versus some of the elastomeric pumps because you have to look at the type of procedure as well as you have to look at the cost of utilization of each of those pumps in a different manner. But there's certainly ways that you can look at this and evaluate the cost and the um, outcomes as well. And it should be done with the local anesthetics because as we're getting new devices, I imagine that some of these devices may have a very certain indication as we start to delineate out the different surgical procedures, and I think that's the road of the future. People are going to want a clearer indication on which device is better for epidural versus a paravertebral versus a regional nerve block, and I think that's where we're headed.
1: I agree with you, Jenny, and I'll also add on that because we've all experienced the drug shortages. The drug shortages of the local anesthetics have actually caused us to look at the concentrations that we're using, and do we really need 0.2% of ropivacaine? Or are there certain types of blocks where we could use 0.1% and and get the same efficacy? And that's where looking at your data and looking to see if you can make some changes is actually important. And to make any local anesthetics you can get to last as long as possible and be able to meet the needs and provide the patients with the best post-operative pain management regimen. One of
3: the other things, as you said, with drug shortages that happened at our institution, is we were using bupivacaine in our elastomeric pumps. And then there was a bupivacaine shortage, so we went to ropivacaine, and ropivacaine was far more expensive. And so that was the point in time that some of our surgeons decided that they were willing to try the liposomal bupivacaine because although it is more expensive, when you compare it to putting an elastomeric bulb with ropivacaine, it was probably less expensive. So you have to kind of weigh what's going on in our world of drug shortages in this day and age also.
1: Well, thank you very much, Ginny and Leslie. I really enjoyed hearing your perspectives and tips related to the management of postoperative pain, and I'm sure pharmacists listening to this also found it very interesting.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much. This concludes the third and last part of the roundtable discussion. Two web-based continuing pharmacy education activities related to the management of postoperative pain will be available, one in March and the other in April 2014. To access these activities and other educational opportunities on this topic, visit the web portal at www.ashpadvantage.com forward slash post